Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, September 23rd, 2013, and this is episode 1212 of the Survival Podcast. Since it's Monday, we usually do a listener feedback show. There will be one this week, but it will be Tuesday instead of Monday for two reasons. One, I'm in a really good mood today. I'm in a better mood than I've been in for a long time. It's beautiful out. I've walked the geese a bunch of times today, took a walk with my wife, chatted with some of you guys on Zello, planned out a battery backup system. I'm going to do a mobile one, but before I do the mobile one, I'm going to do an internal one inside my office in the closet. I got all the stuff ordered to do that except the batteries today. Um, it's just a good day overall, and I'm happy. And the reality is a lot of stuff that's queued up for the Monday show, which is now the Tuesday show, makes me not happy. There's a lot of ass clownery to talk about this week, and putting it off for one more day won't change anything, and it'll not ruin my extremely good mood. The other thing is because of all the things I just said, I'm starting recording today at 12.20 p.m. That means the show is going to go out late, and with Monday shows taking so long, I'll be here till 3.30 or 4 o'clock if I do a Monday show at this point. So, what is today's show going to be about? It's going to be about grilling and cooking outdoors, grilling and smoking and all those good things. It was prompted by a question last week on the Friday show and then some follow-up questions today on the uh, blog uh, where a guy asked, this guy, same guy that asked about the grill, asked about all-in-ones, you know, these big giant monstrosities that do, uh, you know, charcoal cooking, propane cooking, and sidebox smoking. Uh, my answer is don't do that. You'll find out why in a bit. But I'm going to go over all that I've learned Uh, about cooking outdoors with smokers and with grills and propane and everything else. And, um, you know, this is actually a show I should have done a long time ago because grills, uh, smokers, etc. are great everyday pieces of equipment. They really are. I mean, they enable you to do things that you cannot do with food uh, on, a, on a stovetop or that would be difficult to do on a stovetop. So they're just a great utility. But they're also a great piece of prep gear. Um You know, with, uh, you know, a few bags of charcoal loaded up, a few uh, tanks of propane loaded up and some wood set aside, uh, you've got a long time that you can cook and have a lot of flexibility if the grid's down. So it's, it's really a great prepper skill because it's something you can practice every single day of your life if you want to. And then when you need to rely on it, it's not really a prepper skill at that point. It's a life skill. I'm going to talk about all of that and more. Before I do, though, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our uh, sponsors of the day today. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Western Botanicals. When I need something herbal and uh, I don't have it growing in my backyard or I don't already have it in my uh, medicine cabinet or in our, our, you know, basically our cabinets in the, uh, in the kitchen, I go to Western Botanicals and guess what? They always have it. And when I don't know what I need, I'm like, I got a problem or something I'm dealing with or something a friend's dealing with and I need to look for an herbal solution first uh, rather than a pharmaceutical one. And we call Western Botanicals. They always help us. Dorothy's usually the one that makes that call, including sometimes where she's called and they said, you know what? Um, the person answering the phone's like, I'm not really sure. Let me ch check with our staff. And, you know, somebody will call back maybe an hour later and say, this is what we would recommend. Um, 
that is really a high level of service. And I am so glad to have Western Botanicals as a sponsor. They're, they're just a great company. Um, in a, in a world where usually it's hocus pocus, you know, misdirection focus, uh, and, you know, we have the cure for everything, including the common cold and cancer. Uh, these guys are realists down to earth, uh, with the goal of having an herbalist in every home. Not just providing the preparations, but the raw herbs and materials you need to do your own preparations if that's what you want to do and the guidance to do it. Not only that, guys. They have a program, it's 50 bucks a year, called the Preferred Membership Program. It gives you 25% off everything that they have. Guys, if you're part of my MSB, they give you that for free. All you got to do is call them and they'll set you up. Instructions are in the back of the MSB. Next up today, herbs of a different kind. Chef Keith Snow and Harvest Eating. I swear to God I didn't plan this. That I would do a show on grilling and then Keith would be the sponsor. He should have been a sponsor for a Monday show, but just how it worked out in the rotation. Uh, you can bet I'll be talking about some of the seasonings I use from Chef Keith Snow with the grilling and smoking today, um, especially low and slow barbecue and the Montreal steak. Those are just awesome, along with grilled chicken. Uh, those are three go-tos that I use from Keith all the time, and you'll hear more about them today. But also remember, Chef Keith has an awesome YouTube channel. He has an awesome podcast and an awesome website and blog. So check out not just the stuff he sells, but the information that he provides for free, because it's really invaluable. Uh, a lot of what I know about taking stuff to another level, I've learned from having Keith on the show and interviewing him, and from him serving in the expert council. So Harvest Eating and Western Botanicals, both great companies. Check them out today and see if you, they have something you're looking for. Next up, I want to remind you guys about 13 Skills. That site is fully revamped, and it is just awesome. And uh, we're looking for your feedback. I do need to send all the badges to Joe. I didn't do that. I just remembered right now for the contest. We'll get that done today or tomorrow and get that up for a poll so we can see who wins that contest for uh, uh, the blogger badges for 13skills.com. But get on over there if you haven't. I know 2013 is almost over. Maybe you didn't get started yet. Maybe you're only going to get a few skills that you improve or add this year. It's okay. 13 and 13 is the challenge, right? 13 skills is the challenge shoot for the moon and maybe you'll get out of the atmosphere. That's one way to look at it. 13skills.com. And remember, if you have a blog post or a forum post or a you know a video or something on a skill you've done and you want it featured on a 13skills blog, uh, email Dorothy at skillgirl at 13skills.com. Include a link and a little bit of information about what you're doing and she'll get you featured on the blog. All right. Uh, with that wrapped up, I want to remind you guys, real quick, Member Support Brigade, that's all I'm going to say today. If you want to know more, go to the site, click on Members of the Member Support Brigade banner, and let's get right into our uh, year in history. This is episode 12.12, so uh, I pulled up 12.12 on Wikipedia, and the first event that I found is uh, something that would be in the minds of those that are disaster prep oriented. July 10th, the most severe of several early fires of London burns out most of the city to the ground, and over 3,000 people die. That number's in a debate, as you'll hear in a second. So I looked up the early fires of London and found more on the Great Fire of 1212. Here's what I found, and I learned some things here that I never knew that are kind of interesting. The second of the two great medieval fires of London, also known as the Great Fire of Southwark, began on 10 July 1212 in Southwark, the borough directly south of London Bridge. The flames destroyed Our Lady of Canners, Southwith Wark Cathedral, also known as St. Mary's Overy, uh, and strong southerly winds pushed them towards the bridge, which also caught fire. 
London Bridge had only just been rebuilt in stone, and all the stru- and all of the structure itself survived the blaze. However, King John had authorized the construction of houses on the bridge, the rents from which were supposed to pay for its maintenance, and it appears that these were lost to the flames. I did not know that there used to be houses on London Bridge, and that people would rent a house on the bridge, and that rent was like paying for the maintenance of the bridge, which apparently didn't work out. Um, but I actually am going to have to look more into that and see did they build more houses, because right now there's the two big towers, and I don't think anybody lives in there. Maybe they do, I don't know. But I looked up some old pictures, artist renderings, etc., of what London Bridge used to look like, and it was just like coated with housing. And when you walked across the bridge, there was like an archway that you walked under, and the houses were up on the side of you and over your head. I don't know who lived there or how many people lived there, but it's an interesting thing that I don't think most people are aware of. Um, the earliest account of the blaze appears in Liber de Antiquis Labus, uh, the Book of Ancient Laws, composed in 1274, and today the oldest book preserved among the records of the City of London Corporation. This states, quote, in this year was a great fire of Surthwark, and it burned the church of St. Mary and also the bridge with the chapel there, and a great part of the city. According to later traditions, however, numerous casualties were incurred when a mass of citizens from London rushed onto the bridge at the first signs of fire, intending to cross the river to help extinguish the flames. High winds carried red-hot embers across the river and ignited buildings on the north side of the structure, The fire trapped a large number of people, many of whom died either in the blaze or while attempting to escape in, overlo- in the overloaded boats that had come to their aid. On one later chronicle related, quote, an exceedingly great multitude of people passing the bridge either to extinguish or quench it or else to gaze at and behold it suddenly the north part by blowing of the south wind was also set on fire. And the people which were now passing the bridge, perceiving the same, would have returned but stopped by the fire, end quote. Some estimates put the number of people killed on London Bridge alone at 3,000. But although this figure still appears in the Guinness Book of Records, it is not contemporary and certainly an exaggeration. The total population of the entire city at the time was no more than 40,000 to 50,000 people. No reliable evidence uh, survives to allow an accurate estimate of the number of casualties caused by the Great Fire of 1212, but it is known that the damage done to London Bridge was such that the structure remained a ruin, only partially usable for years afterward. Wow, I think that's kind of really interesting, and it's a story of survival. Can you imagine being stuck on a stone bridge that's aflame with all of these wooden structures around it. You can't get off either side because it's blocked by flames on both sides. And there's people in boats in the river below trying to get you off the bridge. Man, that, in a weird way, makes me think of helicopters flying past burning buildings on 9-11 and people hanging out the window. Um, one little other quick tidbit. Uh, remember, John of England had been excommunicated. Um... So what he did is he impounded the revenue of all the prelates appointed by bishops who de- deserted him during his excommunication, but he remained on good terms with the churchmen who stood by him. So as long as the, the bishops and the churches stayed with him, even though he was excommunicated in his kingdom, he was good to them, but the people that, that said basically, you're excommunicated, you're out, he just took their money. Prelates, by the way... 
you know, prelates appointed by bishops, those are basically like senior clergymen, but they're not bishops or archbishops or cardinals, right? They're like ordinary priests, but they're higher ranking because the high ranking guy said so. Um, so John, pissed off and in need of money, just went to all the churches that, that turned on him and took their money. Gee, that which is old is new again. All right, let's get into the uh, the main topic now of today's show, which is uh, grilling and cooking outdoors. Um, I want to start out with why I think everyone should own and know how to use a grill. And you know, a lot of people have grills and don't really know how to use grills. I uh, have seen enough food butchered on grills to tell you that is the case. Um, there is really nothing out there that's more flexible day-to-day or more usable when power's out, grid's out, systems of support are down than the grill. And because of that alone, if you're a prepper, it makes a lot of sense to know how to use a grill. Different grills and different grill apparatuses are useful for different things. And I want to kind of talk to you about, um, as we get started today, I know some people will disagree with some of the things I say today as far as some will nitpick on what I call something, and I'm not really worried about that, but like it's better to do this or that. And, and the reality is we all figure out what works for us when it comes to grilling. Grilling is, is both a science and an art, and the art is where it gets interesting. And you get better at grilling by grilling. It's an experience-oriented thing. You, you start to know your own grill. You start to know that you have you, know, you have hot spots on any grill. As much as uh, you know, every manufacturer will say we've got great even heating across the entire surface. Bull. Every grill I've ever owned has certain spots that get hotter than others or cooler than others. And generally, your hottest spots are near the rear, and your cooler spots are near the front. But then there's even hot spots within hot spots. And I'm talking about a well-maintained. Good to go, gas grill, everything working optimally, it still happens. And it even happens in charcoal grills. And you can control it some by where you place the charcoal and how much, but in a good even charcoal fire on that grill, because of the grill shape and things like that, and air flows, there's certain spots on that grill that are going to always get a little hotter than others. Now, that's something I can't tell you, like your hot spot's going to be here because your grill's going to be different than mine. And that's just one example of what I mean by when I say experience is the teacher in grilling. Because I know on each of my grills, smokers, etc., where those spots are. Because I've used them so much. So when I want something to have that dark, charred thing and it's just not coming up, and I turn the heat up, I also know, well, if I put it there, I'm going to keep an eye on it, but it's going to do it quicker. All right? So... The experience is a big key, and what I want to give you is kind of my experience with grilling, um, so you take my advice for what it is. It's it's highly experienced, and I don't mean because I've won contests or anything like that or because people love my food or anything like that. I just mean from time. I cook about 90% of food that we consume for dinner in our home on the grill 365 days a year. Um, I cook Thanksgiving dinner usually in the oven. That's really about it. The other stuff that gets cooked in the oven or on the stovetop is just because, for convenience sake or speed, or it's really, really bad weather out. Uh, I cook in January and February on my grill. And I don't just do that because I live in Texas. I did that when we lived in Pennsylvania. The neighbors would think I was crazy. You got snow out there and all. I'm out there grilling. Well, why not? It's great. You know? Um, so... Just on hours alone, the opinions I'm giving you today 
are based on, you know, years of cooking time. I mean, absolutely not years of time cooking, but if you added up all the hours, like, I guarantee you I'm into the years applied in front of the grill, in front of smokers, things like that. So a lot of times when I do a subject on here, I have some experience with it. I'm bringing in expert advice. I'm doing research and I'm combining those. This time, I'm giving you the stuff I've done and I've had the results good and bad from all of these things. So I want to, you know, get right into what like really prompted me to do this because I don't want to see anybody buy one of these things. I hate all-in-one style grills. I hate them. I hate them with a passion for so many reasons. Um, one of the big things I've learned with grills is bigger is not always better. Big bulky grills are a pain in the ass to move. And having made quite a few moves in my time, I've had grills that were marginally still okay that I sold or gave away rather than move them because they took up so much space and they were such a pain in the butt to move. Um, my sidebox smoker was really on its last legs when we left Arkansas. And after the moving truck and multiple trips, I would have still brought it. But I had one more trip to go get stuff, and it was there I gave it to neighbors. Um, and it wasn't really the best sidebox smoker I could have had. And now I have a great one I'll talk about in a bit. But that big bulkiness of those all-in-ones alone just really makes them not that great. Um, next thing, if you're going to do sidebox smoking, you want thick, heavy gauge steel. If you don't have that, the first time you get a good hot fire in your firebox, the paint will burn off the steel. And then it will rust. And you will sand the rust and put primer on it and paint it again. And then it will burn off again. And then it will burn off again. And you will eventually burn out the firebox. If you have thick, heavy steel made for that type of operation, it'll last you for years and years and years if you take care of it. So the all-in-one already is too bulky, and the firebox, I've never seen one that's adequate. It's massively heavy, even though it's cheap, thin steel, and it just has too many points of failure. Because now I've got a place where I'm going to put charcoal, but I've also got a place where propane goes, and I've got that big, huge space. It takes up all that space, and I can't separate the two. What if I want to charcoal something and propane something at the same time? They're not really optimized for that. You can do it, but you've got, you don't have the same control of heat because the two boxes are sitting side by side. And just in general, they're cheaply made, everyone I've ever seen. The size, the cheapness, and the impractical nature of them, I, I just absolutely don't recommend one. And if you want flexibility, I'll talk about ways to do it with the best equipment you can get today. At a reasonable price. So I'm talking like a sidebox smoker running you four to five hundred dollars. I'm talking a grill running you a basic grill, hundred, hundred and fifty bucks. I'm talking a good gas grill, uh, running you hundred fifty, hundred eighty, two hundred dollars, uh, or more depending on how big you want the grill to be. Um, in that class. And I'll talk about how to do it as cheaply as you can and still have good product. Um, but the all in ones just don't do that. I'm going to start out with gas grills. And it's because I think they're so flexible, and, and I'm going to talk about what to look for. One of the big things, if you're not going to buy an infrared grill, which is what I'm going to recommend after two years of using one now, is you want to open up, and if you look at Weber's, you'll always see this, and I love Weber as a brand for all things grill. They're one of the best, longest, you know, in the history of, of the country, manufacturers of grills. But when you open up the bottom where you keep your tank, and look up underneath the grill, you'll see that most um, grill manufacturers have a drip tray that comes way, way down to one small hole. 
including charbroil, which I'm going to actually recommend one of their grills, but a different kind in a second. Which is, and charbroils are pretty good, commercial uh, grade charbroils. But that pan comes all the way down, and then it drips the grease into a very small container. That's bad in a gas grill because it's a lot more opportunity for the grease to build up and end up with a fire down in your, your, your bottom end where there doesn't, it's not supposed to be a fire. If you look at a Weber, you'll see that the opening is huge, and then it drops down into another pan that catches it and funnels it to its drip location. Because of that, the, as the grease does have any kind of buildup, it's well below the burner. And you'll, if you just go to Home Depot or Lowe's and open two gas grills and one's a Weber and take your little pen light and shine up under there and look at it, you'll immediately know what I'm talking about. I've never had a grill with the big opening, and Weber's not the only one that does them that way. But the, the grills with the big opening, I've never had one catch onto a grease fire from underneath. And I've used other ones, including fairly expensive ones, with the different type of opening that have caught on fire on me. And I'm, I'm talking, I cook bacon on the grill, not in a pan, bacon laid on the grill with the infrareds, with the Webers, with anything with that good opening. And I've, I've had flare-ups, but I've never had it one catch on fire. And that's, that, when you get those fires, they generally go out. They're not really, as long as you're paying attention, but they do damage to the grill and they reduce its lifespan. And that's something Weber's clearly put a lot of thought into. So that's why I'm always looking for that if I buy a gas grill. Unless, a couple years ago, we moved to Arkansas, and we had a, a big, huge grill that had caught on fire a few times and worked okay, but was really a monstrosity, and I didn't want to move it, and it was clearly on its last legs. I was going to have to rebuild the whole thing, and being not really happy with it, I decided to give it away. So we did that. Um, so we moved to Arkansas and we started looking for a grill and I've now gotten to the point where I am sick of big grills. And I, fe I looked at just dozens and dozens of different grills. Uh, I was going to go with a, you know, a full size Weber and I found this grill by Charbroil and they had it in like a full size and a half size. And with Dorothy and I not doing a huge amount of entertaining there and having the big side box smoker for larger meals, I decided to go with the half size. It's a T-22D. I'll put a link in today's show notes for, for you on the Charbroil website because that's the best information. On it. Don't buy it there. It's cheaper everywhere other than direct from the company. Um, though I will say if you need parts, uh, if you go to Charbroil's website, they have all the parts, and a lot of times they're harder to find. But this was an infrared grill, which made no sense to me because infrared to me is light, and this uses gas, and there's no light. Uh, it sounded a little bit like a gimmick, but it's the way they make the lower plates and upper plates where the way the, the heat passes through. And I read enough reviews on it and enough satisfied people that I went ahead and bought one. Best grill I've ever owned as far as gas grills go. Better than a Weber. I don't know if Weber started making something like this or not. Um, I haven't really looked into that because after buying the Charbroil, I am sold. Now, it came with steel grills, and the, the grill sits in this pan, shallow pan that sits on top that has a bunch of little holes in it. That's what does the infrared magic, whatever it is. I don't care about the science. I just know that it works. They worked really good, and like I said, I grill 100% of the time almost. So I use this thing every day for almost two years. The plates 
began to degrade and needed to be replaced. The grill tops were still good. But when I went to Charbroil and ordered the underplates, I saw that they had cast iron grill tops for it. I was like, that's it. I'm going to go and replace the whole thing. I replaced it with the cast iron grill tops. The grill is now like the grill God would use if God was going to use a grill. I mean, it is absolute perfection. The heat control, the distribution, the ability to sear meat. There is no better system that I've used. Something might exist, but it is absolutely phenomenal. And I will tell you right now that Home Depot and Lowe's are probably selling them type of thing cheap because it's going into wintertime. So it might be a good time to go look at picking one up. But I, I cannot recommend that combination highly enough. And here's, here's the best part. You get no flare-ups. You get no grease fires. I, don't, I have not even examined the technology to figure out why or how. But I've never had, they can get little flares right when grease drops, and that's it. Most of it just sizzles off. Um, just like, there's a little grease pan that you're supposed to empty. I've never seen any grease in it. The grease gets incinerated, and it gets incinerated as it falls, so there's no buildup. And it's, as far as gas goes, the best. If you're not going to buy one of those, I would go with a Weber. And if you're not going to buy a Weber or try to save some money, I would look underneath a Weber and see what I'm talking about, about where the grease flows through. And I would go with something like that. If it's got a pan that funnels down that's close to the burner, it sooner or later is going to build up in there. It's very hard to get in there and clean, and it's going to catch on fire. And I absolutely would recommend for your gas grills going with cast iron tops. Get yourself a good grill brush. And every time you use it, take that grill brush to it and soak it in like peanut oil or olive oil. Do it before you cook and do it after you cook. Within a few times, it will be perfect. Cook on lower temperatures until you start to get your seasoning done. Don't try your high temperature grilling until you've maybe cooked on it four or five times. The best thing to start out with, though, um, again, I brush it with oil. But when you first get it and first start using it, cook some bacon on it. Thick bacon, medium temperatures, throw it straight on the grill, turn it with tongs, and brush that bacon grease into it. Take some stored bacon grease on your grill brush, brush that grilled bacon grease into uh, the, the cast iron. It is the best seasoner out there. Um, and once you build up a good patina on that cast iron, just don't ever forget you've got the grill like heating up and like overheat it when there's no food on it. And you'll be fine. If you do that, you'll you know you'll burn off the patina and you have to start over with fresh cast iron. Um, the cast iron tops from Charbroil come pre-seasoned and they do a good job. A lot of pre-seasoned cast iron, not so much. The stuff from I got again, I bought the tops and the new reflector plates directly from Charbroil. I'll put a link to this thing so you can see about it. Now, the limitation with the small grill, it doesn't cook as much food. We just had eight people here. I cooked bratwurst and burgers for eight people on the grill with some hot dogs at the same time. I was able to do it, but it was a little bit crowded. And I had to think about when I put what on. Like, got the bratwurst half-cooked before the burgers went on. Didn't have two heat zones to work with and all. But it was really great. Now, what I've been thinking about is buying the big version of this grill. And then, you know what I realized? That's dumb. I'm going to end up buying another little one. Just like the one I already have. And when I need to cook for more people or I want two heating zones, two is one, one is none. Greater control And they're small, so they're easy to move. This would be a grill that if you wanted to take it camping with you and you were going truck camping, 
Two people in three seconds, up on the truck, back up, bungee tied, done. So it's easy to move around, flexible, small, convenient, not too bulky, beautiful temperature control. Um, if you want a full-size grill, I would understand why. But you could buy two of these for almost the same price as one big one. Same cooking surface, right? You get an extra propane tank when you buy it. So that's always a good thing to have. And, you know, you've got the flexibility to be doing two things in totally different controlled environments. That's pretty cool. Um, and then you could cook for as many people as you probably want to grill for as one person anyway. Let's talk about basic charcoal grills. Um, as I mentioned Friday, I am a huge fan of the Weber Kettle Grill. It is one of the oldest solid designs out there. And uh, it's absolutely one of the most flexible, underrated grill platforms you can get your hands on. Um, probably the best value is the one-touch gold kettle grill, the 22-inch grill, 150 bucks. And uh, you can get the uh, the silver one touch, which just is the same. It's the same body. It's the same stand. Everything's the same, but it doesn't have the amount of control with vents that are the, the venting stuff that's mounted up underneath the grill. And that control's worth the fifty bucks as long as you got the fifty bucks to spend. Um, so I would go with the one touch gold over the one touch silver. The next step up from there in their kettle grills is a gold one-touch. It's a 26-and-a-half-inch kettle grill. It's a lot more cooking surface. It's $300. This is a place where if you're in that I-want-more-cooking-service area, you might consider two of the one-touch 22-inch grills. Now you have the equivalent of 44 inches in two grills, and you don't need to use the big grill unless you want to. It's plenty flexible to do a lot of things I'm going to talk about within a second. Two is one, one is none, and if you decide you want to go camping and take one with you, it takes up less space and has less weight when you toss it in the back of your truck. And that, if I was going camping, would be what I would probably take over even the gas grill, the little charbroil. Um, you're out camping, you want a real fire, and these grills are not heavy. They're very well built, but they're not heavy. Now, the Weber, especially with the additional ventilation controls under it, like the One Touches have, Uh, the one-touch golds have, is a good smoker, too. You build a fire on one side, you cook over indirect heat on the other side, you throw some uh, some uh, wet, it, wet down uh, chunks of wood or wood chips, and it's a good smoker. It's not going to low-temp smoke for you very well. It's going to be very hard to hold those temps down to a true low-temp smoke, but you can smoke in the 225-degree area with it, no problem at all. I could do a smoked brisket on a Weber one-touch. I might want a little bit of a smaller brisket. It's going to take a little longer, a little bit more looking after than a side box smoker. It's not the ideal way, but I could do it. And if you could do a brisket, you'd do a couple chickens or some sausage or something like that. So the Weber will let you grill and smoke. And it's just a great grill. Now, the only thing I'm not a huge fan of with the one-touch grills is that they come with a steel grill uh, top. So a chrome steel grill top. It's fine. It ain't cast iron. And it doesn't do what cast iron does. But they make um, universal cast iron uh, kettle grates. And, and you can use them, in the, even though they're made by Charbroil, they'll fit in a Weber. And what a Charbroil makes is 30 bucks, And it's basically like got a manhole inside a manhole design. So it'll work on a 22.5 inch grill and it'll work on an 18 inch grill if you just use the centerpiece. And you can pull the center out to get down to your coals 
uh, without having to pull the entire thing off. Um, I recommend for things like that, there's all these tools and stuff people have and hooks, get a pair of vice grips, okay? pair of vice grips, small pair of vice grips, clip on to the grill itself to lift up out of there. And if you want to be able to not put it on the ground and like start a fire or singe stuff or get it dirty, just hang a wire somewhere with a loop in it where the, the, the part you turn on the vice grips can go in there and hook in there. And that way you can always set your grill aside without having to jack around with it, worried about, you know, set it on the ground, you get it dirty, it singes the grass, dog comes up and licks it and gets his tongue burned, all of that type of thing. Um, there's a lot of other grill, like cast iron pieces that can go into your uh, Weber grills It's a standard because they make them a standard size. Um, some have different, where different pieces can come out. If you're going to do a lot of smoking, I would get one like that where you can leave your meat alone, open up one side of the grill, get access to it, and add chips and coals for your smoking. If you're not going to do a lot of smoking or slow cooking, it's not really a big deal. But it's something I would look at. Um, it does add weight to it. And you may want to, if you buy your Weber grill that comes with its chrome grill top, to keep that grill chrome top and take out your cast iron and use it when you go camping if you want to reduce your weight uh, just of loading and unloading something. But it's not that heavy. But it's just something you might want to do. And always, if you replace grill tops and the other old grill tops in good shape, hold on to it. You never know what you might want to do with it later. Let's say you don't have a hundred bucks to put into a grill and you want a decent grill for cheap. Um, I would look for, I can't remember what they're called and I can't find them online, but Lowe's, Home Depot, etc. sold them. They were all the same. They're square. They fold, you know, the, the legs fold out and it just sits and it's a square grill. I believe they were called a walkabout, but I can't find anything with that name on it online to be sure. I've used them before. I had two of them. I cooked a lot on them. Uh, a year of heavy cooking will wear it down pretty bad, and two years will wear it out. But for a $50 grill, they're a good grill. And they're pretty much usually in the, the spring. They're in all the box stores. Um, and you, you, based on the way I just described it, if you see it, you'll know it. If anybody has a picture of one of these, maybe you could send it to me. I'll check images real quick on Google and see if I can find one. Now, what do you know? Don't go to Amazon all the time, and you might find it. Home Depot sells them. This is exactly what I'm talking about. I'm looking at right now. It's called the Aussie Walkabout Portable Charcoal Grill. Uh, they're red and black, uh, $49.97. Uh, they are the best cheap grill I've ever owned. I, if you want a long-term investment for a grill, something that's going to last you five years or more, uh, you're going to cook on daily or every other day or three times a week even, this is not the grill. If you want a grill that you can afford for now, that you can get a, a full year of use out of, this is a good grill. If you want a lightweight grill to take cooking that's pretty much full size, flexible, you can smoke with, etc., um, when you're out camping and all, and you're going to be car camping or truck camping, you don't mind folding the legs up and throwing this thing in your truck, it's good for that. It's so good that next time I'm at Home Depot, I might pick one up just for just to have as a redundancy. I mean, that's that's how good this cheap grill is, but it's still a cheap grill, and I wouldn't go any cheaper than that. And with what this grill does, I would never settle for a tabletop hibachi-sized grill that's going to cost you 25 to 50 bucks because this will do more. And if you take care of this grill, you could get two years of pretty decent use out of it. If you grill the way I do and it's the only grill you use, I promise you... If it's still working in a year, 
you won't feel safe about it because you're going to be ready to burn the bottom out and have it drop down. The negative on this grill is that it does not have any kind of a metal plate underneath it. So when stuff does fall out the bottom or through the holes, or if it starts to get worn and it were to have a failure, it's going to drop hot coal straight on the ground. So it needs to sit someplace where that's, it's safe for that to happen. Little grill safety tip for you guys that I always do. I take a garden hose as long as there's one available. If you're camping sometimes, you look for a spot with dirt because you don't just have it available. And I soak the ground around my grill. Especially this time of year in Texas, I just soak everything and I leave the hose sitting there in case it's necessary. And it's, it's just an easy, safe redundancy. But cheap grill, Aussie walkabout portable charcoal grill. I did remember the name right. I haven't had one since we lived in Arlington, but I, I went through at least two or three of them. It was my favorite grill when I used to, and I don't know why I don't do this enough anymore. I need to put more recreation in my life. I used to occasionally take a drive down to like Bryan Beach or, uh, Surfside Beach in, you know, south of Houston, Galveston area. And, um, you know, spend the night, maybe even fish in the morning and come home that afternoon. And, uh, it was my favorite little grill to throw in a truck to take down there. Um, and we rinsed it out with salt water. I mean, we abused it, me and my buddy Brad, the tw twice that we went down there. And I think I went down once alone. And all three times, you know, because you want to go home and you don't want anything burning. And, you know, you give a little, you know, your fresh water's for drinking and washing your hands. So I just took a bucket and cleaned it out with salt water. And uh, that probably aided the degrading, uh, degrading of it. But, man, it, it tolerated that kind of treatment for a year. So that grill is hard to beat at the $50 price point. Um, let's move on from there. When I bought my my uh, Charbroil Infrared, I was determined between do I, because we just moved to Arkansas, I had the Cybox smoker, we're going to buy a new grill. Do we buy a charcoal grill or a gas grill first? And... Um, I ended up deciding to go ahead and buy the gas grill first. The charcoal grill I almost bought was another Weber product. It's the Performer Platinum Charcoal Grill. It's got the same kettle as the as the, the big kettle grill that's like a $300 grill. Uh, but this one's $350. It's got a table next to it, a bin to store charcoal in it, and this was the big thing. You take a one-pound propane bottle, screw it in the bottom of this thing, and there's a propane burner down there, not to cook on propane. You put your charcoal in, you light your propane, propane gets the charcoal going, you shut it off. I've never used one. The people that own them that I've talked to are all happy with them. It seems very cool, and you do have a work surface to the right of the grill. Um, I was a little concerned because it's like a plastic, nylon, some sort of material that it might not be able to handle the temperatures, but I've talked to two people that own them, and, and they said they've had no problems with it. Uh, it's very well thought of on Amazon. Um, I, I can't really fault it. Uh, the, the reviews on it seem very high. It's a bit expensive, but it is a Weber, and there are no two- or one-star reviews. There's six three-star reviews on it, 12 four-stars, and 118 five-stars. And uh, I think if I were looking for a really high-end charcoal grill, that is the way that I would go today. But because I have a sidebox smoker that I can use as a grill, as we'll talk about in a second, I'm not going to buy one. But I would certainly recommend you look at it. And there's a couple different uh, options in it. Um, but it would be something that I would suggest, even though you can buy it on Prime on Amazon and get it shipped for free, and you may want to do that, uh, I would go to Lowe's sells this grill. 
And if you're thinking about it, I would go there and look at it first. And I would definitely upgrade the grill top in it to cast iron. I would do that with any charcoal grill uh, that I thought was quality. What else would I recommend for charcoal grills? If you didn't go with a cheap walkabout, a good kettle uh, Weber kettle grill, nothing. For just a dedicated charcoal grill, nothing else is as good for the money as those options. Does that mean there's no other good charcoal grills? No. It just means there's nothing better for the money. And you can go to Walmart or you know any other box store, and you can pick up a $75, $80 charcoal grill uh, pre-assembled. You can toss it in the back of your truck. You can bring it home. Uh, it'll work really good. Uh, you won't have any complaints about it till after about a year when it will the bottom will burn out of it and it will fall apart and you will throw it away and buy another one. And for an extra hundred bucks, you could have bought the base level level Weber. And if you keep it covered and take care of it, it will last you five to ten years. If you grill like me, it'll probably give you a good five years of service, and it might still be good if you're taking good care of it. If you grill like most people and you keep it covered, it, it, you'll, you'll probably own it till you die. I mean, they're just that well built in comparison to a lot of other things. So there you go on that. I'm going to real quick mention ceramic grills, highly insulated ceramic dome-style grills like the Big Green Egg and other grills like it. Uh, I have to say that I think they must be incredible, I, but I've never cooked with one. Everything about it makes me think that things like doing chicken or lamb roasted in one of those would be amazing, but since I have, you know, almost like a tandoori oven type of effect. But since I haven't used one, I can't say much. They're expensive and they're heavy, but they're not, they're compact and easy to move around. And more and more people are making versions of them, and that's driving the price down. Because I have so much cooking flexibility already, it's not on my radar to buy one, but as the price continues to come down and I find a good quality one uh, in the right price point, it's something we might add down the road. Um, again, I put them on this show simply because I know there's guys out there that have them, and you would be like, I can't believe you didn't mention these things. They're great. Um, I, again, I haven't ever cooked with one, but... My, my instinct is they would do amazing, especially on when you're roasting something on a grill, that they would just be phenomenal for that. I'm sure they do a fine steak, but you really don't need them for a steak. Um, I can do a steak on charcoal or gas, never, never close the grill. I'll get to some techniques here as we get closer to the end of the show. But um, for like the roasting, braising stuff, I, I just have to believe that it would be like having a grill that's almost like a pizza oven. And that seems very appealing to me. Now, I want to talk about one other charcoal grill. Remember when I said I wouldn't buy anything but a Weber, uh, in the, you know, basic charcoal grill, or if I was going to go down, I would buy the Aussie. There's one exception, and it's one of these novelty things that I, I kind of want one just to have one. Uh, but they're expensive enough that they're not the kind of thing I buy just because I want one. The model on it, you can look them up on Amazon. These are about 300 bucks. It's a PK99740 cast aluminum grill and smoker. Um, it looks like it's from the 1950s, even though it's brand new because it's from the 1950s. The design is absolutely a 1950s grill. They were made by a company in Arkansas. They are a lot like the ceramic grills we just talked about in, in a way. Because the aluminum is huge, huge, thick cast aluminum. I, I've not measured it, and the specs don't say uh, how thick the aluminum is. But let me put it to you this way. 
It's all aluminum except for the grill grates, which are steel, and they don't weigh that much. The grill weighs 35 pounds, made out of aluminum. That gives you an idea of the amount of aluminum that goes into these things. The vent control on them is awesome. I learned about them from a guy named Scott Davis, who is a magician that performs in Hot Springs, Arkansas, uh, who's a long-time listener to the show. And we went over to his house, and he made some steaks. He put the steaks on this grill. Like I said, I've seen a lot of people ruin a lot of good meat on grills. I thought it was going to happen. It didn't. He uh, kept it fairly closed down, put these three beautiful thick steaks on the grill, shut the top of the grill, and we went inside. He went out once, flipped it, and did it again. I would never cook a steak this way. They were amazing. They were amazing. I never cook steaks with the grill down because you it just I'll talk about that in a minute. Just it's generally not done. Because of the way this aluminum distributes the heat, it came out beautifully. It did not flare up. They did get nicely charred. They were medium, perfectly done medium. And uh this grill is awesome. It's not very large. And the few complaints about it on Amazon and the reviews say it's not large enough. And the one person says you can't even fit a full rack of like baby back ribs on the thing without cutting them in half. Um, sometimes I wonder about people that do reviews on Amazon, like if they're just just being jackasses to be jackasses. Because I'm looking at one of the pictures with an unopened rack of baby back ribs on it, sitting you know catty corner on it, and I'll tell you you could fit two on there without cutting them in half. Not that it would be a terrible thing to have to cut them in half. It's not a huge cooking service, but it's big enough for what it does. The story behind it is, again, these were made in the 50s. And the guy that restarted the company was at a swap meet or a garage sale or something and found an old one. Bought it for like 20 bucks, takes it home, and just decides, this is the greatest grill I've ever owned. Researches who still has the patents on it, purchases it from the family that doesn't manufacture it anymore, and starts making them again. This is a resurrected piece of the heyday of American history and when everybody was you know, getting into like the 1930s to the 1960s was when grilling caught on in America. And that's what this is. This is from that time frame and it's extremely well made and he's apparently building it to the exact specifications it was made with in the 50s. Um, is it the best charcoal grill ever? I don't know. I, I, I haven't used it enough. I've had one experience with it. Is it a damn good grill? Awesome looking and uh, does a great job. Yes. And is it something that, you know, you kind of have is like this piece of American history? Yeah. I kind of look at it this way. I've always said like Ford and Chevy and Dodge should bring back things like the Camaro and the Mustang and the Charger and the Challenger and do it this way, not the way they've done it. All the modern technology the exact same car. Build a 67 fastback Ford Mustang. Don't make it look different. Don't try to, you know, harken back. Build the car frame dimensions the same. The, 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 the design of the hood, everything else like that. And then put your modern technology in it. And you'll sell more of them than you can imagine. Because there's so many guys that want a 67 fastback, for instance. Car manufacturers don't get that. This guy does. This grill's the same grill that your grandfather would have went and bought in a store in 1955. And I think that's a pretty awesome thing to see happen in America. And it makes me wonder, are there other opportunities like this for people to find things that were really good, that the patent still exists, but the family's not doing anything with it, 
and bring it back and use modern manufacturing techniques to build the product the way it was intended to be built and not be cheap. This could have been built for less money. It could have looked just like it. It could have made the aluminum a little bit thinner and drove down the cost, but it wouldn't be the same. It was built this way for a reason. So I think that's a great grill to look at as well. Next up, and this is a subject I can probably do a whole show on, just on cooking with them. And if there's a demand for it, maybe I'll do a sidebox smoking cooker show one day. Just all the things you can do with them. But they're my favorite way to cook for a variety of reasons. The biggest is if I have a bunch of people coming over, just a ton of people coming over, and I don't want to spend all my time on the grill. I just want to set it and forget it. I can go out and get a great big brisket and season it and brine it up the night before. I can do the same thing with a pork shoulder. There's a picture on today's episode of just that, a brisket and a pork shoulder that have just been put onto the, the, the grill. I can get up early in the morning. You know, I'm talking like 6 a.m. And if I really want, if they're coming early, I can, I can put it on at night and do it overnight. And eventually the fire will burn down almost nothing and, and I can charge it back up in the morning and get it going again to finish it off. But if it's there, people are going to be showing up around 6 o'clock at night, I can go out about 6 o'clock in the morning. I can fire up the firebox, get it going. Within a half an hour, I've got the coals right. I've got the wood on it. It's smoking. I've got a bucket full of soaking wood chunks sitting next to the grill. And I can go back about once an hour and check on things, throw a few chunks on there, change my vents, keep an eye on my temperature. And it takes two minutes to do that. And I think it cook all day long. And I know about six o'clock when we pull it off and let it rest for a while, when I put that knife into it, it's like butter. And everybody's going to love it, and I get to spend all the time with my guests when they start showing up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, hanging out at the pool or doing something else, watching football, whatever, and dinner will be ready when it's ready. That's awesome. And there's a certain amount of flavor that goes in when you, you know, smoke a pecan or hickory like that. There's no other way to do it. It can do the same type of things. Not qu It doesn't take as long to do, but with ribs, sausage, chickens you know if you had a bunch of people coming over you can do up half a dozen or a dozen chickens put them into one of those things and just do the same thing i just described now here's the secret with chicken on these things smoke them right for about an hour and a half and then finish them on a gas grill if you want to Because that way you can get some high temperature in there, get it cooked, and you're less likely to end up with dry chicken. Because if you leave chicken on one of these things too long, it will dry out on you. Um, what won't dry out from a chicken? Legs and thighs. Um, you can just get a ton of chicken leg and thigh sections, like the whole thing, where you got the leg and the thigh still attached to each other, and smoke those, and those come out beautifully on a sidebox smoker. Uh, things with a sidebox smoker to look for. Heavy, heavy, heavy. If you can pick it up by yourself, do not buy it. I'm, I'm dead serious about that. When you fire up a firebox on one of these smokers, the initial heat is extreme. You're building a great big bed of coals that you're then going to use to roast or use to barbecue or use to smoke. And you're going to go to much lower temperatures. But when you first fire it up, it's a lot of volume. It's a lot of heat. You buy a cheap smoker, the first time you fire it up, just walk around to the back side of it, watch the bottom of the firebox. The paint will begin to bubble and peel and come off. And then you're going to 
you know, get a wire brush out and get the rust off it that's going to show up in a couple weeks. Throw some primer on it, paint it with black high temperature grill paint, and you're going to watch it come off again and again and again and again and so on. And eventually you will wear it the hell out. If you can pick it up by yourself, don't buy it. And you see these cheap sidebox smokers all over the place made with this thin-ass steel, and they are junk. Buy the, the heaviest one you can afford and the biggest one you can afford. This is where to make an investment. Because this is something that if you buy the right thing, you'll own it for 20 years, even using it all the time. You want a big firebox. I can build a small fire in a big firebox, but I can't build a big fire in a small firebox. And the big firebox has a lot more volume and airflow, and I can have more control over my temperatures in my, my, you know, my barbecuing, smoking, roasting, braising area if I have a big firebox. A big firebox dissipates the heat on your initial startup better so you don't burn the paint off. It's not just thickness, it's size. You don't burn the paint off. Because the, the heat can transfer around more material. It's not, think about it like a blowtorch. You take a blowtorch and set it to where it's not got the, the flame refined down. It's just kind of going, right? You put it on a piece of steel, it won't cut. But if you turn it to where you've got the, you know, down to a cutting tip, it'll blow a hole through steel. That's because you're putting the same amount of energy in a smaller area. When you have a big firebox, You're dissipating the amount of heat from your fire across all that surface area. You have a small box, you're concentrating it to a smaller area. So it wears through the metal faster. Big, heavy firebox. Um, the beauty of your sidebox smoker with a big firebox and good grates. I like heavy-duty grates. I don't really love cast iron for sidebox smokers. Um, I like the ones that are kind of diamond shaped. I'll, sh I'll put a, a link to the, the uh, one that I own. It's uh, made by uh, Old Country Barbecues and it's got, it's almost like a diamond shaped grill top. And it, they don't sit in, they slide in and out. And I prefer that as well because let's say I'm cooking on one of these things and I want to tend the fire underneath and I can slide it halfway out. And because it's got ridges in there, it'll hold even with the food on it And I can get access to the coals that are underneath it. Some people will grill, like turn the whole roasting chamber of their, their smoker into a grill if they want to do charcoal grilling for a lot of people. I do not do that. That area is not for that. It'll work just fine, but it's not made to be cleaned out the same way. Um, and it will reduce the overall life of your, your, your grill. If you have a big firebox, you have plenty of grilling surface over the firebox, and if you just want to use the firebox is a grill and not smoke that day, you have plenty of space to do it with. So the reason I don't have a dedicated charcoal grill right now is this awesome new smoker is my charcoal grill. Again, I might pick up one of those walkabouts just to have to take with me when I start going places again because they're so good for the money. But if I'm going to grill at home, I'm just going to fire up the sidebox smoke of the, of the smoker and cook over that. So it has this massive flexibility if you buy good quality heavy duty. Um, and smoking is something you, 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 know, you take time to learn. You play with it. First thing I'm going to tell you, if your grill comes with a thermometer, 
it's probably a cheap thermometer. You should probably throw it away and buy a good quality, you know, professional barbecuer's thermometer. Um, and when you have that, you, you can, you know, be very sure about the temperatures you're cooking at. I don't freak out about it, but I do want to know, hey, my temp's down below 200 degrees. And, and I'm, tr I'm not just trying to like slow smoke salmon here. I'm trying to cook a big hunk of meat. That's not hot enough. I need to bring it up. And I generally will do briskets in the range of about 250 to 300 degrees. That's what I try to hold. If it drops down to two and a quarter, no big deal. And you start to learn based on which way the wind is blowing, which vent to open, which vent to close down, things like that. As far as cooking, I use briquettes when I grill to just grill. When I do side box smoking, I either build a fire out of pure wood or I use lump charcoal. And generally, I use lump charcoal. It burns hotter and it gets you to the, the you know your desired level with a smoker faster. But there's nothing wrong with using briquettes in a smoker. I just choose to use a lump because after doing both, I get better results. Now, something I will do. If I want to hold a higher roasting temperature in a smoker, where I'm not really smoking, I'm more indirect heat roasting, a lot of times I'll get a bag of briquettes, and as I'm adding chunks of wood, I'll also add briquettes of charcoal. Because they'll stay and burn longer than the wood will. And that mix gives a good control to my temperatures. And sometimes you can simply go, I want the temperature a little hotter, and take one chunk of pecan or hickory and put it in there and close it down and watch temp come right up. And sometimes you want the temp to come down a little bit, and you, you reach in with some tongs and move a hot piece of wood off to a lower temperature side of the of the firebox where it's not quite as, as burning as hot, and then you watch the temperature drop down. These are little things you'll learn over time. But there's a ton you can do with sidebox smokers, but you want good quality stuff. The next thing I want to talk about is this, this tower-style smokers. And there's two types of these. There's ones that are basically a sidebox smoker, but they have a real high tower. Those are awesome for the dedicated barbecue smoker enthusiast that wants to, you know, because they've got a lot of space vertically. And you want to do chicken, ribs, sausage, brisket all at the same time. They're awesome. They're expensive. They're worth it if you're that guy. And if you're that guy, you already know what to do. I'm talking more about the little dedicated smokers. Little cylinder ones you can buy for anywhere between 40 and 80 bucks at any box store. They're great for smoking. And they are big enough to do a brisket. And you get a lot of temperature control. If you buy those lower end ones, they're not incredibly well made. But since you're cooking at lower temperatures, if you keep it covered and use it as a smoker and not really use it as your grill, they'll last a long time. Um, I don't use them, but I've had several buddies that are big-time smokers that like to smoke chickens uh, and like to smoke uh, you know, pork and like to smoke brisket, but they do like one thing at a time. And you know, it's the guy that has the apartment and he's out on this patio and he's going to throw a couple chickens on there and smoke them. And the results I've seen out of them are very, very good. So if I wanted to be able to grill, smoke, and have a gas grill, Um, and I wanted to do it on the lowest budget I could, I would recommend you spend the money on the charbroil that I talked about today you know, in depth and get a smaller one. I would get you know, an entry-level Weber kettle grill, and I would get one of those dedicated smokers. Like I said, you could smoke on the Weber, but not the way that you can with one of those little tower smokers. Um, what I personally own is the great big Old Country Barbecue Pits uh, Pecos Grill, 
about 400 bucks. I bought it here at a place called Academy uh, Sports and Outdoors. I love it. Um, and I have the, the Charbroil. Those are my two main grilling implements right now. And I have all the flexibility I could ever want. I would never go out and buy one of those little tower cheap tower smokers because why would I when I have the sidebox smoker? If I needed to conserve space and conserve budget, you could not do wrong with a $100 to $150 Weber grill and one of those $80 smokers. If you're not, you know, insistent on having a gas cooking option, that would do almost everything you would ever want to do for like a family size and down. And for the person that lives alone or you're just one couple and you don't have kids, you don't do a lot of entertaining, that would be enough. Cheap gas grills, man, when it comes to gas grills, you get what you pay for. I would buy a half-size Weber or Charbroil before I would buy a cheap gas grill. And I would avoid the big giant monstrosities. Next thing, I used to be a fan of grills with a side burner. The side burners on grills, though, just don't have a lot of power, and they add bulk because unlike most of the, the work surface areas that you have on them, you can't pull them out and fold them down because they're permanently affixed. Um, they're another point of failure. Uh, even when you put the covers on them, they generally don't make a good work surface at that point to put stuff. And, you know, if you want to heat up a little sauce or some beans, they're fine for that, but they're really not good for cooking. You're not going to throw your egg skillet on there and, and really get great results out of them. So I have become for, you know, cooking with a propane burner outside, just get a basic uh, propane burner, dedicated propane burner, like you would fry fish or fry a turkey with. They're not expensive. Um, if you want to, you can get a splitter valve and, and use the tank that's on your, your grill. I generally just grab another uh, propane tank and bring it out. I use it when I, when I need scalding water for, for plucking chickens. Uh, I use it when I brew beer, I use it. And if I wanted to, you know, scramble up some eggs or something outside, I would probably go to that on its lowest setting with a big cast iron skillet over top of it. Um, what would be ideal with using one of those is to build some type of a adapter that would hold the skillet a little higher than generally they, they allow. But I find those to be more useful. Um, if I really wanted to just like fry some eggs or, or do something with a skillet outdoors, I'm probably not going to fire the grill up and put the skillet on the grill. That'll work, but it's not very efficient. I need to try it with the charbroil, with the infrared. I've not done it, and I'm thinking here now why haven't I, because... The, now that I have the cast iron surface on it, the heat transfer is awesome. So I'll give that a try and let you guys know how it works. I'll do up some eggs and bacon uh, on there and see how it works. Maybe we'll video it because I've been underwhelmed by trying to do that with other grills in the past. But this thing might do it well. Um, but what I've generally done when, like, you know, power's out, we're going to cook outdoors for breakfast, make some bacon or whatever, is I get the EcoZoom versus stove out. And I, I, I run charcoal in it, about four bricks of charcoal, get it going, and then that little door controls it, and you just set the skillet on the top, and it's just beautiful. It's perfect, it's easy to control, and I would rather do that than especially try to, you know, fry or saute on a, on a grill, like a, like a charcoal grill. So that's where I am on that now. Now, my uh, sidebox smoker, the firebox has a flat surface, on the top of it, where if you wanted to heat some sauce up or some beans while that firebox is running, you just set your pot on there. That works great, not so much for cooking, 
but for heating stuff up. But I'll bet you, you want to bet that if you had a nice cast iron seasoned skillet and you were going out in the morning to fire up the grill anyway to smoke a brisket all day long, and once you got your fire right and your brisket on, if you threw that up on top of there and gave it a little time to heat up, that it wouldn't make a great, uh, great thing of scrambled eggs and bacon or over easy eggs and bacon. I guarantee you it would. So that's, I'm going to try that one for you as well. You start to realize the flexibility you have with a good grill setup. Let's talk about some tips on cooking various things. I saved this for the end. Hopefully it's late in the day. I won't make you too hungry. Um, the number one thing that people go to grill and do poorly with is a steak. Like I said, with that 1955 grill that Scott used, he was able to do it in a way I never would. It came out great. But generally, steaks should be cooked with the top of the grill open. Open. Steaks should be thick. The best thing you can do to make your steak wonderful is to take it out of the refrigerator, sit it on a cutting board somewhere. If you're worried about flies or something in that time of year when they get in the house, cover it with a cloth, but leave it unrefrigerated for an hour before you cook it. It will not spoil and go bad in an hour. It won't kill you. I know the government says if it gets warmer than 40 degrees, it's throw it away. But what temperature was it when it was sliced off the side of a dead cow? It wasn't 40 degrees then, and it didn't kill you then, and it won't kill you now. Bring the temperature up. Season it as you like it. One of the easiest seasonings, if you don't have Keith's awesome Montreal steak, which is my go-to steak seasoning, but is just garlic salt. Nothing else. Just garlic salt. If you want a little bit of an added flavor, coarse ground black pepper. Both sides of the steak or what seasoning you like. Get your temperature of your grill hot. I can't tell you exactly how hot. I don't know. I just look at it. But when you drop that steak on the grill, it should sound like steak hitting a grill. Right? And it should char. The, it should be hot enough that the outside of that steak is nicely marked and charred in about a minute. You're not going to only cook it for a minute on that side, but it should get to that point. And then once that's done, flip it to a different spot because you've now dropped the temperature of the grill that you, part of the grill you were cooking on. So move it over one. Do that again. When you flip it, if you want it to look cool, turn it a quarter turn. That's how you get those like diamond shaped grill marks on it. Cook both sides until it's charred, and if you if it's not done enough for your liking at that point, and at that point it will be pretty red, move it off the hot spot of the grill to a lower temperature spot of the grill and finish it with the grill open. If you cook a steak until it's no longer pink at all and it's well done, you are wrong. You have ruined a perfectly good steak But I understand the people that have aversion to eating meat that's pink. Eating pink meat will not harm you. It will not hurt you. The redder the better in some ways. I like mine to the point where it's pink, but the very center is still pretty red. Don't worry about blood on the plate. I'm going to tell you how not to have that problem in just a second. But I will say this. If you are a person that insists on cooking your steaks till they're well done, get a charbroil infrared. It's the only grill I've ever seen that will make a well-done steak and it will not be dried out. It will still be juicy. It won't taste as good, but it will still be juicy. 
So that, that that's an absolute must-have. If you are the well-done steak eater, you need that grill. And if there's another grill that'll do it, you can tell me about it, but I don't know about it. I know that one works. So there's your steak. Don't try to make it complicated. It's grilled meat. Let it be what it is. Um, chickens. My favorite way to grill a chicken, seasoned up with Chef Keith seasoning, but before you do that, make a brine. Salt and water are the brine. You could add anything else you want. I usually do some chili peppers, ground peppercorns, onions, and garlic in a big pot, and then I soak that chicken in there. Uh, I'll do it overnight um, if I have time. If I can only get a couple hours, it's still great. So soak your chicken. Now, I don't care if you're doing gas, charcoal, or smoker. The best thing you can do if you want to do a whole chicken to get it to come out really good, take a serrated knife and cut right down the backbone and, and, and open it up. So you open it up so that you, it's flat, like butterfly. Don't cut it in half. Leave it whole. Just cut the back in half and then open it up. That way, you can cook it the entire time with one side down. And cook it through, and the skin will get beautiful for you over time, and you won't have to flip it, and you won't tear the skin, and you won't have all different issues. And if you want to put a little bit of a barbecue sauce on it at the end, you can do that and not burn your chicken, and not have your skin stick, because the skin's the best part. We all know that. So beer can chicken and all is cool, but butterflying that chicken open... I get better results that way. Um, I have tons of recipes that I'm not going to go into. I'm just going to stick to techniques. If you guys want recipes, we'll do that. Maybe Joe and I will start doing more video where we show you what we're cooking and how we're cooking it. But that's kind of my go-to way to do chickens. I will give you one recipe for chicken here, for wings. Take your wings and cut them into three pieces. Take the tips, put those in a bag, and freeze them to make stock with when you have enough And after you're done making stock, take the wing tips and give them to your dog. They'll love you for it. And it's just a little cartilage. You don't have to worry about bones, and they will devour them. Take your other two pieces, put them in a bowl. Into that bowl, don't ask me how much. I don't know. I do it by sight. Add um, enough chili garlic oil to coat them. Where do you get chili garlic oil? You make it. Take a bunch of tight red chilies, tear them up, put them in a pot. How many? As many as you want. Big handful of black peppercorns. Put that in the pot. Big handful of chopped garlic. Put that in the pot. Cup, fill the pot with peanut oil. Turn it on low temperature on your stove. Bring it up to where it just starts to like it's frying. Not deep frying. Just It's about to start deep frying. The bubbles are just starting. Turn the heat off. Take, take it off the stove. Set it aside. Leave it sit for a day. Strain it out. That's chili garlic oil. There's another way to do it if you want a more intense flavor. Make sure when you put your chilies in, you don't leave the stems and stuff like that. Um, and when you do your garlic, make sure you peel it and all. Take it, put it in a blender, and blend it. Blend the crap out of it. Do it the same way, you know, stove, off the stove, let it sit for a day. But blend it, and then strain it out. And you'll get a more intense flavor. But both work good. So you've got your chili and your garlic oil, your chili garlic oil and your, your wings in uh, your, your bowl. Now, take fish sauce. You can use soy if you want to. I try not to use soy as, you know, any other one I have to. But add fish sauce. About the same amount as you added oil. That'll give it the salty taste. And the fish actually works really, really good. Remember, you're going to cook these things. You're not going to eat them raw. So it's not going to be up front. It's somewhere in the background. And it's a taste if you don't tell people they don't know what it is. Then into the bowl, add about a 
I don't know, a teaspoon, two teaspoons of chili powder and about two teaspoons of, you know, just like regular chili powder, mild stuff, and about two to three teaspoons of paprika. And then a big half a handful of Chef Keith's uh, chicken, uh, grilled chicken seasoning. And anything else you want, but that's the base of the recipe. I add, sometimes I add a little Worcestershire sauce. If I'm going to do them like in a roasting pan where they're not going to be grilled directly and I know they're not going to burn on me, I'll do a little bit of honey. I'll talk about how to do that with the grill in a second. But mix that all up. And then you need also a bunch of chopped, additional chopped garlic. Or since it's so wet, you can use dehydrated garlic in this and it actually probably gives you more flavor. Dehydrated garlic and onion added to that. Let that sit in the refrigerator for at least a couple hours. I try to do this in the morning if I'm going to make wings. Then grill those. Just grill them until they're done. It usually takes about 45 minutes at a medium-high temperature. Turn them often. If you want them crisp and a little bit a little bit burned here and there, that, that little perfect look to them, and you want to do it with something sweet, don't use honey or sugar when you put them on. Take about half honey and half water. Or you can use like uh, like a, a car like a brown sugar, something with the caramel still in it, turbinito sugar, something like that. Dissolve it in warm water, and when they're done, brush them, flip them, brush them again, flip them, and just keep an eye on them until you get them the color you want, and pull them off. And what you'll find is like one will look the right way before the others. Take it off so it doesn't burn while you're waiting on the other ones. As you take that one off, it's on a hot spot. Move one of your ones that's kind of not really getting the color over to where that one came off. By the time you're done, you'll be putting the last couple in that hot area. Take those off. Those are amazing. Well, that, that is a signature Spearco dish, the wings done that way. Um, for pork, for a pork shoulder, same brine I gave you for the chicken. Okay, Saltwater brine. You can, there's all kinds of brines out there you can use. Soak it overnight. Do not trim the fat off of it. If you really want an amazing pork shoulder, go to the Chinese market, Asian market, and get one with the skin still on it. Do the same thing I just said. If you get one with the skin on it, take your knife and like cut like just barely into the skin and make hash marks all around it. Awesome. Um, when it comes out of the brine, Coat it with Chef Keith's uh, low and slow barbecue uh, seasoning. And then smoke it on a sidebox smoker. Or you can roast that indirect temperature, indirect heat on a grill. Uh, you guys with the Webers, put the coals on one side, put the pork roast on the other side. You have to pay attention to it a little more, but it will come out amazing as well. Um, brisket. Briskets, I generally don't brine a brisket. Brisket, I generally just season it up. Throw it on the grill with the big fat on the top side. Brisket's the best self-basting meat out there. If you've dried, if you've ever dried out brisket, you've either bought a trimmed brisket. Don't do that unless you're making like you know uh, corned beef or something like that. Um, if, if, if otherwise you've dried out a brisket, you've done something bad wrong. There's so much fat, even in a grass-fed brisket. Um, now here's my secret for brisket, and this is something I don't tell everybody, but I'm about to. I finish my briskets in the oven, not on the grill, especially if I have two days to do it. I'll smoke a brisket all day long if I really want to make the best brisket I can for people. I'll smoke a brisket all day long. I'll bring it in the house. I'll wrap it in foil. I'll put it on about 180 degrees in the oven, completely wrapped and sealed overnight. And in the morning, 
it will blow your mind how amazing it is. Most people that are big grillers wouldn't admit to that. I can do it on the on the smoker if I really want to, but for ease, and the pork shoulder recipe I gave you, you can do the same thing. Smoke it for five or six hours. It'll give you all the flavor you could want. Wrap it completely sealed. Put it in an oven, low temperature, 180 degrees. You can hold that perfectly without thinking about it for another six to eight hours. And fall off the bone, amazing, juicy. You'll never dry it, dry it out that way. So there you go. Um, I don't know. I don't want to keep going into more and more recipes here. We're at an hour and 15, and I thought this would be really kind of a short show. Um, but let's just go through a, a few things here at the end on maintaining your grill and making it last a long time. Um, number one, get a tarp or a cover for your grill and keep it covered. That's the number one thing you can do. And as I think about my smoker where it's sitting right now, I'm moving it because I don't, I use it so much. I don't like to cover it and covering can be a pain in the ass, but man, it's, it's really worth doing unless if your grill, like my, my charbroil grill is on my porch where it's covered. What I mean by covered is like there's a, a cover over the porch. So it's protected from the elements because it has a roof over its head. And that's a lot more convenient. And if you're not big on putting covers on things and taking them off and putting them on, try to find a place like that. What I'm going to do with my smoker, we put it out in the backyard because it seemed like the right thing to do. I'm going to put it by the third bay of my, my big garage and cook out there with it because you don't stand around a smoker unless you're drinking beer with buddies. And then I, I'll stand around my, anywhere I want on my property. It's not like I'm in suburbia. Um, but that way I can just, when it's done being used, lift the front end. It's got big steel wheels on it. Roll it in the garage. That's going to be my solution rather than covering that monstrosity and have to uncover it because I probably use it once a week. Um, but cover them. Number two, if you have cast iron and you cook food and you kind of eat away some of the patina and you close it up and you don't clean it right after you're done, you will come back and it will be rusted. And this is very true of smokers. If you have a smoker with cast iron, it will rust if you treat it that way. You need to, when you're finished on a cast iron grill, you can go in and eat. You don't have to do this immediately, but you do have to do it the day you finished cooking. I don't care if you're going to cook, and I cook the next day, and I still do this. Go back up, turn your heat on, and get it hot again, right? If it's on charcoal or something, it'll still be hot. If it was gas, you've shut it off. Bring it back up to a decent temperature. Get a grill brush. Knock all the crud off of it. The good thing about the charbroil that I, I went on and on about, when you do that, it goes down in the thing, it just gets incinerated. You, you, you just, it's amazing the way this grill works. And then I usually keep two brushes, one just to knock stuff off, and another one I'll dump some peanut oil on or something like that and coat it with oil. It takes, including heating it back up if it's cooled off, it takes like a whopping three to four minutes to do. It'll make your cook surface better every time you use it, especially with cast. Uh, you need to do this with any grill top. I don't care if it's chrome or what. Clean it. But with cast, you really need to make sure you're cleaning it and oiling it. Do not build too big of a fire. Even though I went on and on about how you, you, know, you can build a big fire with your, your sawbox smoker, you probably don't need as much charcoal as you, can, as you think you do. I've gone over to have people cook, and they're going to cook hot dogs and burgers, and they have a big round grill like a Weber or something like that. And I've watched them put a bag of charcoal into it. And then when they cook, they're just burning the hell out of everything and can't figure out why. Um, this is another thing you gain with experience, how much charcoal to use. But if you're new to grilling, um, probably use a little bit less than you planned on. 
If you start grilling and you realize you've used too much and the temperature's too high, pull your food off and give it 20 minutes. I mean, that's that'll solve you so many. People insist, well, I got to get it done by six o'clock. No, you don't. I'd rather wait 20 minutes extra to eat food that's prepared properly than eat food on time where the food doesn't taste right because it's been burnt or overcooked or cooked unevenly. And you know that's a big thing too is when you're when you're cooking with charcoal, give the charcoal time to turn white. Don't be cooking when you still have lots of black on your charcoal. On lighting your charcoal, if you get a chimney starter, right, a little charcoal chimney starter, instead of spraying lighter fluid on it, not only people don't want to do that mainly because they say a lot of the residue flavors from the lighter fluid get into the food. Maybe if you go crazy with it, but not so much. But you get that really high intense heat, that reduces the life of your grill. And I mean the body of the grill at this point. Because those flaming coals are sitting down there in the body of the grill, just pounding the hell out of the steel. If you use a chimney starter, you set that in your grill, you start that, and um, by the time it's ready to go, like all the flames have been channeled and you dump it in. And if you use a chimney starter, your odds of using too much charcoal go away because they're made to have hold just about the right amount of charcoal. Now, if you're cooking a lot of food and, a, and you need more charcoal, you need two starters. You know, or if you've got two grills, you need two starters. If you have a big grill instead of a small grill and you want more coals, you need two starters. Ch chimney starters. Here's why people don't use them. So you get the chimney starter. It says crumble up newspaper loosely in the bottom, put the charcoal in, and light it, and it'll take care of itself. Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. The number one reason it doesn't, People don't have newspaper because nobody reads the newspaper anymore. So they use paper bags or paper towels or something like that, and it doesn't burn the same as loosely crumbled newspaper. So it doesn't get the charcoal going. And then they end up spraying lighter fluid in the charcoal anyway to get it going. This is not good. If you use newspaper and don't, and the other reason is people wad it up too tight, or they use one little tiny piece. Either of those will also ruin it. But loosely crumbled, about four hand-sized balls of newspaper up under there will almost always work. But here's the easy way. Take some olive oil or peanut oil or vegetable oil and dump it on your newspaper. If you don't have any newspaper and you use like a brown paper sack, same thing. A little bit of oil on that. Not on the charcoal, on the paper. Then you got a little grease fire going for a while. By the time that gets the... You know, what actually happens is the paper's not starting all the charcoal. The paper is getting the charcoal on the bottom going and it kind of spreads. Because charcoal burns at the temperature charcoal burns at. So when one is burning next to another one, it transfers that energy and it ignites. Okay, so chimney starter for your charcoal. That will make you have a better result. It'll prevent you from using too much charcoal. You won't need the input that is lighter fluid. And a little bit of oil. And you don't need a lot. Just, you know... Just a little drizzle of oil on that paper will make sure you get full combustion. Um, so that's a good thing. Cooking with wood. Um, and what I mean, I, I like grilling with wood chunks and things like that. My favorite wood to grill with is mesquite. I don't really like to smoke with mesquite, but I love to grill with it. It's a very high-temperature burning wood, and it has a long burn. It, it, it continues to burn for a long time. Beef and chicken are both amazing over mesquite. Uh, so is quail. Uh, so is dove. You, if you know, I'm, I'm talking about now about cooking with wood chips. If you're going to cook with wood chips, 
the easiest thing to do is a little bit of lighter fluid. They catch and burn a lot faster than charcoal does. Get a good burn going on them, shut your grill down. Shut it down. It'll smoke like crazy. Um, when you when you're able to when you open up a grill that you've done this with, don't stick your face over it. There's a very good chance that that wood has not been dampered down enough yet, and as soon as you open it, it's going to blow, and it's blow in the face. Um, when I'm doing this, I generally open the the grill with like a stick or something, so I can stand back. Because I've seen a lot of times where you haven't let it long enough, and like the gas that's built up under there from the wood smoke, actually the smoke ignite, and you get a big flare up. So be careful with that. But once you've got that wood died down a little bit. You can move it around with a, with a poker or something like that. Add one or two pieces at a time if you need to keep it going, and you get a good bed of coals, and you're good to go. The, the reason I say to damper it down is good hardwood, a lot of times the amount you're using to grill with will pretty much burn itself out before it goes down enough. So I like to let it burn to where it's starting to like go down on its own and then damper it down. And then cook straight over it. Like I said, you can add pieces at a time. This is not smoking where you're adding wet wood. Hickory works well for this. Apple fruit woods work well for this. But mesquite works the best. For smoking, pecan or hickory are, are the two best. For building a wood-based fire, not a charcoal-based fire, and then smoking, oak. Oak or hickory or, or pecan. All work good for your... Now you're talking about where you got little sticks of firewood, basically. So you're building a fire like you would build in a fireplace, burning that down, and then smoking on top of that. I like to do that when I'm doing more of a roasting on the, on the side box smoker. So now it's not I'm going to smoke a, a brisket for nine hours. Now it's I'm going to do some chickens or some, some sausage or something, and I'm going to, I want to get it up around 350 degrees in the cooking chamber. I want to either use a good lump charcoal fire, Right, and then use chunks of wood on top of that, not soaked wood. Now, now I'm just going to use chunks of wood, keep that temperature up, or I'll build a fire from oak or pecan or hickory, small sticks. I'm talking 12 to 16 inches long and about an inch or two in diameter, like small firewood. And I'll get a good fire, good bed of coals, and then I add chunks and sticks to that as I cook. That's a great way to cook with your sidewalk smoker, and not just smoke, but actually roast. That's great for whole chickens. If you want to do beer can chicken on a side box, that's the way to do it. You don't have to do it directly over the heat. If you add your grill top, though, to your side box smoker, so now I've got food in the, in, the, in, the, in the cooking chamber, and I've also got my grate over top of my heat, I can do things like cook that chicken for a while, get the flavor into it, and finish it off over the direct heat. So it, it's about starting to combine these things. So I went like an hour and a half on cooking with grills, uh, and now I'm hungry, and hopefully you're hungry too, and I don't even know what we're making for dinner tonight, um, but we have an awful lot of leftovers from uh, from yesterday, so maybe I won't be grilling today, uh, but I kind of want to now. I hope you do too. Um, remember, if you take exception with some of the things I said today, and you're an experienced griller as well, um, that's fine. We, if you're an experienced griller, you know we all find what works for ourselves, but on the product recommendations, um, I'll put some links up. Some will be Amazon links. I'm not running affiliate links or anything like that. I'm not telling you to buy this stuff so I can make a buck off of it. I'm telling you it because I've used, you know, I've been through 12 different gas grills and I gave up and bought quality. 
I've been through tons of charcoal grills. I've been through cheap smokers. I've been through middle-grade smokers. The products I'm recommending or something equivalent to them is what you want if you want it to last. If you want to go cheap, that $50 walkabout is a good cheap grill. But again, it's still a cheap grill. You want to go solid charcoal grill, you want a Weber. You want a sidebox smoker, I don't care who makes it, but if you can lift it by yourself, it's crap. Uh, it just is. The aluminum grill that I mentioned from 1955 era, uh, my one experience with it is a good grill. I don't know that I would personally spend 300 bucks on it, though. The ceramic grills, again, I just don't have the experience with them, but I'll bet they're amazing. Uh, when it comes down to it, though, it's going to be more about technique than the product. And the longer and more often and more frequently gr you grill, the better you'll get at it. And I didn't even get into doing vegetables and things like that today, folks. And maybe I'll do... I'll tell you what, I don't know how this show is going to be received. If you guys want me to do a show on grills and leave all the types of grills out and just talk about here's how you, here's how you cook chicken, here's how you cook uh, carrots. I'm going to give you a carrot recipe real quick here at the end. This is something that people have eaten and been like, wow, I can't believe that that's just a carrot. Foil packet, either baby carrots or sliced, you know, full-size carrots. About... A good pinch of dehydrated garlic, enough to get it kind of everywhere. Chopped fresh sage. And about, oh, a good two tablespoons of butter, depending on how many carrots you're making. Wrap the foil, you know, where you double it over, double the ends over where it's completely sealed. You might even want to double. I usually double wrap foil. So I do a packet, and then I make another piece of foil and wrap it in there. Take that, put that on the grill on pretty high heat until you hear it sizzling. Flip it. Give it another couple minutes of sizzling. Take the packet off the grill and set it to the side. If you're not ready to eat yet, it will still be serving temperature 10, 20 minutes later wrapped up in that foil holding that heat in. And the carrots will continue to you know, cook themselves basically without direct heat. If you take it off then, you'll end up with like bright orange carrots, nice and sweet, where you can cut them with a fork, but they're not mushy. If you leave it on the grill, you'll end up with mushy carrots. It'll be like baby food. You won't like it. Give that one a try. Again, if you guys want to hear more about things like that, grilling mushrooms, portobellos. Oh, I can tell you how to do portobellos in a half a second. You won't believe how awesome they are. Um, different meats, stuff like that. On the grill, let me know. I'll do another show. If this show is a big flat flop and people are like, why would you talk about grills for an hour and a half? You know, then maybe I won't do that or maybe I'll take it into the video world or something. But anyway, guys, grilling is a prepper skill. Grilling is being able to feed yourself when everything else has failed. One way or another, you can find something to burn or store something to burn. And if you got food, you can make it edible on a grill. And uh, it's just an awesome lifestyle as well. And if you're paleo, it fits right in with it. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Revolution is you. 